traditionally a physician would practice perhaps into their 70s even, and they would do so with high levels of satisfaction, and they would do so at least half the time in very small groups. That's not a model for practicing medicine that will be able to be sustained in the world of MIPS. So this change is fundamentally reinventing the way the practice of medicine is organized. Welcome to Second Opinions, a HealthStream podcast. I'm your host, Brad Weeks. Join me as I talk to some of the preeminent thought leaders and experts working in healthcare today. In these candid interviews, we're going to hear some alternative views. We're definitely going to challenge conventional wisdom, and we're going to get a little personal. But we are looking for second opinions. Join us. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Miles Snowden, the Chief Medical Officer of Team Health from his office in Knoxville, Tennessee. Team Health is one of the largest providers of physician staffing services in the U.S. Dr. Snowden is widely respected as an expert in the area of healthcare delivery and is a strong advocate for physicians and patients. He has a unique perspective on the impact of the new physician reimbursement model called MACRA, what many are calling the most transformative healthcare law in history. Dr. Snowden, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Miles Snowden. I am the chief medical officer of Team Health. Team Health is a group of physicians, largely facility-based physicians. Uh, we are 19,000 clinicians, two-thirds physicians, and one-third advanced practice clinicians. I would suggest that we probably represent um, a typical group practice in about a decade or two. Uh, but certainly not typical today. We cover 47 states. Um, We are in the business of enabling physicians to have a sustainable and rewarding practice of medicine. Dr. Snowden, some have said MACRA, which for anyone listening is known as the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act. Some have said MACRA and the new quality payment program will result in sweeping changes, not only in physician reimbursement, but also to how physicians practice. Do you agree? I think the marketplace as a whole has dramatically uh, underestimated the impact of macro to the practice of medicine going forward. And while there has been a great deal of focus upon it, it has not been seen as the catalyst for a dramatic change in the organization of physicians to practice medicine. So let me give you some context around that. Still today, based on the Uh, most recent available data, uh, 47% of physicians still practice in groups of five or fewer physicians. A group of that size, five or fewer, uh, would find it essentially impossible to be able to aggregate data and report data and improve upon quality performance data sufficient to avoid very large penalties under the MIPS and MACRA program. So if you think about half of the 880,000 physicians in the United States today being in groups of insufficient size to survive this change, you can begin to understand that this is not just about an additional burden of reporting. This is a fundamental change in how physicians organize themselves. It's also interesting to look at the demographics of that group of physicians in the groups of five or fewer, they are much older 
on average than the physicians that constitute the larger group practices. So you have half of the country's nearly a million physicians in very small groups and they're older approaching retirement. You have half younger in large groups. The latter half uh, will be somewhat successful, most likely in the program. The former half will be the peer group uh, which is contributing the funds that will allow the others to uh, receive incentives, essentially. So as you can imagine, if you have half of the population creating a pool of money to be given to the other half of the population, there's going to be a push to move from one side to the other side of that tension. So thinking about MIPS as a catalyst for the reorganization of the practice of medicine, not simply as an additional burden for physicians, I think is the more insightful way to think about this change. So thinking about this as a catalyst, these are pretty dramatic changes you're talking about. When do you think physicians are going to begin feeling this impact? 2021 will be the year of great surprise for physicians and a catalyst year for retirements, for movement to larger groups, and for various other changes that will be uh, forever, essentially, in the practice of medicine. Um, The physicians that won't be surprised are those who have been active, successful participants in the Value Modifier PQRS program. There are a number of us who have benefited uh, significantly by working hard to report accurately, uh, comprehensively, and in a manner that allows the transparency amongst our physicians to allow them to improve their performance over time and therefore uh, benefit from the incentives of the program. I would argue that these individuals will be well prepared for the MIPS program. Uh, And by virtue of the fact that you have two cohorts, a well-prepared group that's moving into 2017 very purposefully and we're ready to advance their performance against a group that has ignored PQRS, creates a bipolar distribution uh, and is the perfect setup for a large transfer of penalty dollars to incentive dollars in 2018 and beyond. Now, CMS has wisely imposed some gates, some buffers on the transfer of dollars. So the transfer from low to high performing physicians will be less robust under the value modifier program, but it will be meaningful nevertheless, and it will certainly be a surprise to those low performing doctors. Once this is fully implemented, MIPS clinicians are looking at a plus or minus 9% payment adjustment. What are your predictions around how this might change current practice patterns? I think the best way to gauge the significance of any reimbursement change is the portion of reimbursement that is at risk around adopting to that change. In this case, I don't recall any circumstance where a program has produced the potential for a swing of up to 9%, either favorable or unfavorable to the baseline, that is um, make or break levels of change. So once we get into the full, fully matured MIPS program and a 9% potential penalty and a 9% plus various multipliers added potential incentive payment, that is sufficient to essentially make it a make or break program. So I don't believe that it is possible economically for a physician to sustain a practice in the face of consistent penalty payments under MIPS. 
that then takes you to an additional consideration, and so, which is, in essence, the program will drive all physicians to seek the shelter of a better performing group in the program. By better performing, I don't just mean practicing at a high quality level, but also aggregating data, analyzing data, reporting data at a higher level. So the program, in essence, has a limited lifespan, a decade or less, because everyone will move to the higher performing tranche, which produces a circumstance where you're providing serious penalties to individuals who are actually performing at a high level relative to prior performance. So I do think we should think of this program as one that has a limited time span. It may not be limited by regulation and rule, but it's limited by the practical application of always measuring a group of individuals on a scale that's rapidly rising as a, as a whole. Okay, so in your opinion, this is not going away, but what do you see as the most immediate impacts of the macro law? So maybe I'll take that in uh, two halves, uh, the going into the program and the transitioning through the next iteration of the program. The going into the program, I see two uh, major events occurring. The first is a dramatic worsening of the physician uh, availability, generally. So we're already in a critical shortfall for many specialties. We are going to drive out a good portion of those older physicians in those smaller groups that I mentioned that comprise almost a half of our physician population in the U.S. So we will, we will significantly worsen the physician availability problem that we have today. The second piece is we'll see a consolidation dramatic in nature around larger group practices. And it's important to think of the fact that the individual physician is pulling their performance under the new MACRA and MIPS programs, pulling their performance along with them. Whereas in the past, under our value modifier PQRS programs that we have been working on through 2016, the physician only participates in sense that they add their performance to the groups. It's the group's performance that's, that is sustained over time. As the physician begins to pull their own individual performance forward, they are in essence undoing their own economic viability uh, year after year. So the drive to mitigate low performance, low performance can be actual quality of practice, or low performance can be the reporting of the quality of your practice. In either case, a physician can't sustain more than a couple of years of pulling forward unfavorable performance. They'll have to act fast. So I think the consolidation of the physician practice marketplace into large groups is going to happen very fast. That's interesting. How do you see this playing out? Physicians are a little slow on the uptake on some of these programs. So for two years or so, there'll be relative silence. My expectation is 2021 will be a major year in the consolidation of physicians and in the uh, decrease in the available physician manpower in the U.S. So I would see 2020, 2021 as a real um, fundamental change in the marketplace for physicians. So is this a good thing for healthcare? So what I would argue is that rule is a pretty good first step along a multi-decade 
journey toward improving the quality of healthcare. It, it'll hurt a little bit. It'll feel inefficient. There'll be some chafing by the physician community, of course. But at the end of the day, I think we will be better with it than we would have been without it. Okay, so you've talked a lot about doctors and physician groups, but what role do hospitals play in this? Hospitals will be a very important component of that. Uh, For hospital-based physicians, around a third or up to about 40% of their reimbursement is attributable to Medicare and so immediately affected by CMS uh, regulation and rule. Uh, I think it's reasonable to expect that the commercial payers will uh, do as CMS has asked and uh, fast follow these these uh, quality metrics. So you can expect that uh, the majority of a hospital-based physician's reimbursement will be subject to the same or similar incentive and penalties as we're currently seeing in the final rule for MIPS uh, within the next few years. That would basically leave a few smaller payers and um, perhaps Medicaid uh, as the only outlier from the program. So it's pretty easy to see why the MIPS and MACRA rules and the related quality metrics are going to drive these changes even though they may not apply consistently to every reimbursement dollar that's flowing to a physician. If you think about the hospital-based physician or the hospital-focused physician, so proceduralists, surgeons, anesthesia, hospital medicine, um, emergency medicine, for example, they are going to require the assistance of the hospitals in which they're working to be successful in these programs. It is not possible to meet these measures and to improve on these measures over the course of time if your place of practice is the hospital itself. So the hospitals should expect that obviously for uh, owned or affiliated physician groups, this will become their burden to bear, in essence, collecting this data, impacting the performance over time and reporting that data, and then deciding how you distribute incentive payments or penalties to individual physicians. That's a significant challenge, significant concern and burden for hospitals. But even for hospitals who have no owned or tightly affiliated physician groups, it's fairly easy to see that if they don't collaborate with the physician communities that are mostly practicing in their facility, those, phys- those physicians will then be set up for failure in the program and by default will have to seek shelter with another group practice, which more likely than not is experiencing success by virtue of the collaboration they're getting with the hospital or facility in which they are doing work. So. I think it's important as you think about the hospital's role in physicians' ability to navigate through the new MIPS and MACRA program to think about that in two tranches. You have the community-based physician for which there will be only modest impact for the hospital, and you have the hospital-based or hospital-focused physician, proceduralist, emergency department, et cetera, for which the hospital's focus on this program will be differentiating in essence, and may make it the uh, place of choice to work going forward. So I'm going to ask a question that a lot of people are probably asking. Do you see the new administration potentially derailing implementation of this program? 
I don't think the physician community has uh, either the patience or the ability to wait to see what will result from a change in administration as it pertains to the final rule on macro. Uh, we have been given, uh, call it a, a six-month forbearance in 2017 to allow us to ease into the program by virtue of only reporting on a single quarter in 2017. Most physicians that I have spoken with are thinking about doing that, the gathering of data in the third and fourth quarter, picking the most favorable quarter, and then using that as their reporting. So you could argue that we've been given a six-month uh, respite on the program. But six months is the minimum necessary to get ready to perform in, in the third or the fourth quarter of 2017. So I don't think any prudent physician would currently be sitting uh, doing nothing and awaiting to see what the administration is going to be doing. We can't, this program is introducing penalties and incentives that are going to range from 4 to 9%. This is a make or break sort of program, not one that you can uh, opine about the potential effect and wait to see. So I don't know any physician who is not accepted that we have a final rule, and that final rule is how I'll be practicing medicine over the next couple of years at a minimum. So let's pivot to the quality payment program for a minute. Clinicians have the opportunity to bypass MIPS reporting, which again, for those of you who don't know, MIPS stands for Merit-Based Incentive Payment System. They can do this if they participate in an advanced alternative payment model. So it's like a risk-based care model. Now, my understanding is this would qualify them for an automatic 5% incentive payment. Do you see a rush for practices to sign up for these? My particular group is one of the largest participants in the Bundle Payments for Care Improvement Initiative. So one might argue that if anyone was bullish about taking advantage of the advanced alternative payment models, it might be a group such as my own, assuming that Bundle Payments for Care Improvement, or BPCI, is qualified as an advanced APM uh, in some upcoming sub-regulatory guidance. We expect that will occur yet we aren't particularly uh, optimistic that the advanced APM will be a good option for us. So why would we feel that way? And I, and I do believe that that is representative of groups in general who are not overly excited about the advanced APM as it's currently uh, described in the final rule. And that is that the hurdle to qualify 20 and 25% of either reimbursement dollars or patients' encounters is too high. There just are very, very few physician group practices or individual physicians who would have that portion of their patient encounters or reimbursement dollars attributable to qualified advanced APM models of care. If the hurdle was lower, call it 10%, 15%, I would be pretty excited about that because the opportunity to avoid penalties and gain incentive payments around it is very attractive and very robust. It's very enticing, but when you read the rule and you see the hurdle in terms of volume, it looks unattainable for the vast majority of groups. Let's talk about why healthcare even exists, and that is the patients, the patients we serve. Is this going to be a good thing for them? I am not at all certain that the patient's satisfaction with care will be improved. And 
I think there is a reasonable argument to be made that satisfaction may diminish a bit uh, under MIPS and MACRA. The quality metrics are very narrow and they result in a very narrow focus. Patients like a very holistic engagement with their physician, a sense of taking care of the whole person or the whole family or the whole, whole home. And these quality measures are not developed with a holistic approach, nor could they be, frankly, at this point in time, because how do you report them uh, in, in, at scale? So the narrowness of the quality measures are inconsistent with the holistic relationship that patients seek for full satisfaction. So I don't think patient satisfaction will be improved and it may be diminished uh, as a result of MIPS. On the other hand, uh, most physicians will tell you some of the least satisfied patients have the best clinical outcomes and vice versa. Uh, and that probably holds, holds true here as well. So while patient satisfaction probably won't be significantly improved under the program, clinical outcomes, particularly longer term clinical outcomes, I suspect will be improved. For the next two or three years, there aren't going to be many patients that are going to be thankful for the promulgation of the final rule for MACRA. Over the next decade or so, I think we'll be able to point back and say outcomes, particularly amongst chronic illnesses, did get impacted favorably. So you've talked about patients, you've talked about hospitals, let's talk about doctors again. You mentioned earlier, we may lose a good portion of our doctors who are in very small groups, as well as older physicians who choose to retire. How will the remainder of the physician workforce respond? So if you lose a significant portion of your physician population in short order due to the complexity and the risk associated with MIPS, that naturally produces a number of outcomes. One, of course, is the consolidation of physicians into very large groups that can aggregate financial capital and deploy that capital around new investments in technology and consistency of performance. But there are other outcomes in the healthcare marketplace that I think are quite predictable. One is the rise of new technologies. In the past, what we've had is enthusiastic entrepreneurs looking ahead accurately and predicting the need for physicians to procure clinical data warehouse or clinical analytics, but yet having a community of physicians who have largely said, I'm not buying that because no one's making me yet. Well, I think the making me yet time has arrived with MIPS and MACRA. So by the time we get to that watermark year of 2021, when the physician community has felt in 2020 the full impact of a 2018 full year exposure, we're going to see a lot of uptake in technology and data warehousing and analytics on top of that. So technology will be a significant uh, benefactor around these programs. It may even be differentiating for hospitals who are willing and able to create secure, HIPAA-compliant data feeds from their EMR into the physician's proprietary system for regulatory quality reporting. That ability to facilitate that in an efficient manner, in an effective manner, may really be an important differentiator for hospitals by about 2020. How will the industry respond to the shortage of doctors? But for the majority of physicians, it is possible to contemplate a time where much of their work burden 
can be assimilated by advanced practice clinicians, nurse practitioners, or physician's assistants. And that physician then can be the supervisor of care as required by state regulations and as dictated by the prudent practice of medicine. I think we'll see the acceptance of advanced practice clinicians both by state uh, licensure uh, regulation and by general hospital medical staff bylaws and physicians uh, themselves rapidly increasing in the near future. So I can tell you in our own experience in using advanced practice clinicians, patient satisfaction scores are higher than with similarly situated physicians. Okay, there are obviously some difficult consequences to MIPS reporting in MACRA, but is there an upside to this? It's easy to take a glass half empty approach to a MIPS and MACRA as a physician myself who's in the latter half rather than the first half of my career. I don't feel that way, and I don't see that amongst the physicians who make up our 19,000 clinicians. Uh, I see, for the most part, physicians who are energized and enthusiastic about their practice. I see physicians who uh, generally are comfortable with the use of EMRs now, who are comfortable with being measured against peers, who are comfortable with being required to improve quality outcomes over time, who are comfortable with supervising advanced practice clinicians. The physicians who are vocal about being unhappy with the practice of medicine, either recently or certainly will be under the new MIPS burdens, are generally those who, frankly, will be gone with this change. They're in that half of the physician population in the U.S., that 440,000 or so physicians in little groups, older physicians, who probably will look for opportunities to depart. Now, that's not a good thing because, of course, these are highly experienced physicians that will be terribly hard to replace. But when you think about the remaining physician workforce, these are younger physicians who never knew what it was like to practice medicine in the 80s and 90s. They don't have the context the older physician has who is bemoaning the loss of the way practice of medicine used to be. If you don't have the context of what the practice of medicine used to be, uh, you don't miss it. Uh, And I think we have a generation of physicians who are actually very comfortable with a more regulated, uh, more peer comparison based uh, practice of medicine. I like that. Uh, I think that having more of a team-based approach to healthcare, more of a collaboration-based approach, more of a willingness to accept measurement against peer is bound to improve the quality of medicine over time. And as we migrate into a generation of physicians who are comfortable with technology and EMRs and don't know how to use a pen on a paper chart, we'll see that general group satisfaction rise. And with that, outcomes and patient satisfaction should rise similarly. Well, that's good. That's good news. So you sound very encouraged about this younger generation of physicians, but is there a concern or maybe a danger that our best and our brightest students will choose a career outside of medicine? I suspect the best and the brightest have always gone to multiple different professions, and the practice of medicine has only gotten uh, their fair share of those individuals. But nevertheless, I don't think that concern is well-founded. First of all, Uh, The practice of medicine uh, needs a very broad brush of humanity and 
cultural competency, the ability to understand the home life, the cultural uh, normalcies of individuals who you're treating are increasingly important. So to have a heterogeneous group of physicians representing all aspects of society economically, uh, racially, uh, by language, um, by history, by age, uh, by gender is critically important going forward. And I am confident that this country is producing an abundance of scholars sufficiently intelligent to become great physicians. And I don't think we'll have any shortage of best and brightest to become physicians. When I talk to physicians in training today who become our new physicians in our group, so I, I see these folks regularly, they are the best and the brightest, it's very clear. They are highly motivated. They are not disappointed about their career choice and they are not uh, uh, free of the same excitement that I had when I was coming through residency training, for example. So I see no sign that our physicians of the near-term future will be any less qualified, any less excited, any less motivated than my generation or the generation that came before myself. This is a big transition to value-based reimbursement. There will be long-term impacts. Level with me. Will the practice of medicine be more or less satisfying to physicians as a result? I think the practice of medicine will be more satisfying as a result of opportunities for physicians to experience differentiated reimbursement or in their parlance, differentiated compensation for differentiated performance. Uh, underlying some of the dissatisfaction of physicians with their practice is the failure of the marketplace to provide a means by which a better performing physician can be better compensated. Uh, this is the core source of a good deal of the dissatisfaction with the older generation of physicians. Fundamental to programs such as MIPS, accountable care organizations, bundled payments for care improvement, and any of the various other iterations of value-based reimbursement is the ability to compensate differentially for differentiated performance. So to the extent that MIPS promulgates this concept of differential compensation for differential performance, I think that is a fundamental change for introducing higher levels of satisfaction for physicians. There are very few professions which attract uh, knowledge-based workers in which through the course of your career you can largely not expect to be compensated better for higher performance. And physicians are um, perhaps uniquely in that position in the past. This is a great way to begin the process of compensating physicians like we, compensating, like we compensate other professionals. One can't help but wonder whether physicians will be taken aback or be surprised by how they perform under the MIPS program. Uh, it would be reasonable to argue that having already participated by necessity in the PQRS program and the value modifier program that physicians would actually have great insight into how they would perform in the new program. But the data shows that a fair portion of physicians never even attempted to report on the PQRS program. Uh, a minority, but, but a significant minority. 
uh, CMS has suggested that um, about a quarter um, of those physicians with smaller practices uh, are almost certain to experience uh, in, um, meaningful negative payment adjustments or penalties, and that up to 87% of physicians in the first year or so who are solo physicians will experience uh, penalties. Let's say I'm a chief medical officer responsible for a large physician group, or maybe even I'm a, I'm a health system CEO. What's your advice for me? What I don't believe our physicians can do uh, on the, of their own accord is procure and deploy and adopt the technology necessary to be successful. So I would submit that the physician leader of larger groups or systems probably needs to accept the burden of the technology plan around MIPS as a core goal. There's, I think, uh, focus on care pattern improvement but insufficiently on the technology necessary to make that scalable and to hardwire that uh, change in care. The investment in technology will be substantial. The business cases and the returns on investment will need to be robustly developed and in conjunction with various other partners, operators, and financial leaders. And that investment will be substantial. I can tell you that for ourselves, being a 19,000 clinician group, still the technology investment required for us to be successful in MIPS is very material to our business. And it is a fundamental focus for me as a physician leader in assuring that that investment is well-placed, well-planned, and results in a highly robust deployment and adoption eventually. So the technology platform necessary to scale the practice improvement that most physicians can see their way to achieving is what's necessary. It's fine to create improvement with a focus in a short period of time on a small group of physicians, but how do you do that on a national scale over a decade of time in a manner that can be reported consistently and accurately to CMS, for example? That takes the technology investment. So that's where I think a core focus of the chief medical officers of larger organizations needs to be applied. Dr. Snowden, any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? I think the MIPS program is the greatest change I have seen in healthcare, and I have uh, now seen most of the changes in healthcare I'm going to see in my career. Uh, I say that because not that it is a burden in regard to reporting, but rather because of its effect on the traditional practice of medicine. And that is the most important change in MIPS. It is not the introduction of new quality measures, new incentives, new penalties. It is the fundamental reinvention of the structure of the practice of medicine that causes this to be the most impactful change in healthcare during my time in medicine from the 1980s to the present. Thank you, Dr. Snowden. And thank you for listening. You can learn more about Dr. Snowden and Team Health by visiting our website at healthstream.com slash podcast. We also have some additional resources for you there about the macro, as well as a link to HealthStream's Provider Advisor magazine. For more second opinions, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe on our website. <laughs>